Welcome to Humanity Wired, a podcast that explores the human rights impacts of technology today and tomorrow. I am your host, Amy Lair. I'm the director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. On this podcast, I speak with software engineers, computer scientists, human rights defenders, and policymakers who share the same goal of making technology work for humanity, not against us. In recent years, a whole industry of stalkerware, including what's called spouseware, has grown. Some stalkerware companies even brag about their product's capacity to track cheating spouses and significant others. When malicious stalkerware is installed on devices, it is often well hidden, but it allows the spyware's owner to spy on everything the victim is doing. The spyware has serious repercussions to the right to privacy. It also can pose severe physical risks to victims of domestic abuse. Joining us today is Eva Galperin. She's the Director of Cybersecurity and runs the Electronic Frontier Foundation's Threat Lab. She is an expert in general on cybersecurity, but has also been focusing in more recent years on spyware, particularly as it's used to stalk partners, whether they're spouses or significant others. Eva, you've focused on the impact of spyware on human rights activists for years, but more recently you've been focusing on what's called spouseware. So how did that happen? Didn't it uh, start with a tweet? It started with my uh, nation-state spyware research. Uh, It turned out that one of the fellow researchers with whom I had done years of work on uh, nation-state spyware uh, was a serial rapist. And in 2018, I read an interview with one of his victims where he, where the victim was asked, well, what took you so long to, uh, to come forward? And one of the things that she said was that it was because he was a hacker. And she was um, afraid that he was going to compromise her devices and, in fact, that he had threatened to do so. And I was furious. I was incredibly angry. And I tweeted. The thing that I tweeted was that if you were a, a woman in the situation that uh, that was described by this woman in the in the interview, that you could reach out to me and I would make sure that your device got a proper forensic analysis. And so, Eva, what what happened next? I mean, you you asked for people to contact you. So then, people contacted me. <laughs> people contacted me a lot. Uh, I at one point had something like as many as uh, thirty requests a day. Uh, it completely inundated me. I mean, there were also days when I got zero requests. I mean, it's been a year and a half. But uh, the original tweet was retweeted something like 10,000 times. It made the uh, rounds on Facebook. It made the rounds on Tumblr. I had um, people that I know socially tell me that they saw it in completely different contexts. Uh, I was constantly being approached uh, by not just women. Uh, I, I just want to make it clear the Women were not the only people who reached out to me, uh, but by victims of abuse. So I, I talked to women who were being abused by men. I talked to women who were being abused by other women. Um, I talked to men who were being abused by women. But the majority of the people reaching out to me and the majority of the situations that I dealt with were uh, women who were being abused by men. And so tell me what some of those stories were like. I mean, what is... What does it look like in practice if, if a woman has been, let's say, infected with spyware or spouseware? Um, how does 
how might she know and, and how does that affect her life or endanger her? Well, the first thing that I discovered was that I didn't really understand the problem and that most of the people who came to me uh, at, who were concerned about device compromise actually had account compromise. Uh, or had handed over the passwords to their account, or the security questions on their account were, uh, were easily guessable by somebody who knew them well. Uh, so the vast majority of the stuff that I was dealing with, we had mitigations for it. Uh, for most accounts, you can simply tell people, change your passwords, use a password manager, uh, make sure your passwords are strong and unique, and use the highest level of two-factor authentication that you're comfortable with. And that will generally take care of your problem. Um, but the most severe cases that I saw, the ones that were really disturbing, the ones where harassment uh, was uh, really intertwined with uh, with terror and physical violence, uh, were cases in which a victim had uh, stalkerware installed on their device, whether it was their phone or their computer. Most commonly, it was their phone because a phone is such a, a great uh, source of intel for a person who is interested in spying on you. It gives up your location, your messages, all of your passwords, all of your photos. Uh, it's it's quite the amazing spying device. Yeah, I was going to say, so tell me, if someone does have spyware installed on their phone, what does that enable someone to track about them? It depends. Uh, but for the most part, uh, spyware on somebody's phone gives you access to uh, everything that you can see from that phone. So your location data, your photos, the passwords to all of your accounts. Uh, if you're using your credit card, then your financial data, um, all of your photos, all of your conversations, all of your text messages, including all of your end-to-end -end encrypted text messages, because in the end, they have to be decrypted at the endpoint. Uh, it's incredibly invasive. Right. It's always been my understanding that spyware, including spouseware, basically makes encryption not very meaningful. Encryption is still meaningful. I, I think it's really important to explain to people that the word encryption is used in a number of different ways when people are talking about privacy and security. And that one of the things that spyware does is it gets around end-to-end -end encryption because in the end, you you have to decrypt it at the endpoint. So even if you are using it end-to-end -end encrypted, uh, Messenger, if you have a, a compromised endpoint, then they can see the contents of the message. And, and encrypted messenger does get you is protection against the, the middleman, the person whose service you're using. So if you're using an end-to-end -end encrypted messenger, then in order to get the contents of your message, an attacker cannot go through the service that you are using. They can't attack the service. They have to attack you directly. That's a great clarification. So let's say that there's a woman who's in some kind of abusive relationship or has tried to leave it, but she's affected with spouseware or spyware and maybe realizes that, you know, this has happened and somehow she's being stalked, basically. Um, what recourse does she have, I guess, in terms of both her own devices and maybe law enforcement? And, and how well does that work? Well, uh, to begin with, a victim's recourse through law enforcement is often limited by law enforcement's ability to understand uh, how this kind of abuse takes place uh, and the difficulty of documenting this sort of abuse. Um, 
as a general rule, spousal abuse and uh, stalking and harassment are very difficult to get uh, law enforcement to act on, either because they don't understand it or they don't take it seriously or it's very difficult to document. Um, there is no question that uh, abusers are often violating the law. Uh, frequently, the things that they are doing are illegal, and installing spyware on someone else's phone, for example, is not legal. Listening to somebody else's phone calls by remotely recording them is not legal in the United States. Um, Recording a phone call without the permission of the other person in a two-party consent state, such as the state of California, also illegal. Um, but people do illegal things all the time and get away with them, and that's because it's very difficult to get law enforcement to uh, to follow up. Some of that is a lack of training. Some of that is a lack of resources. And some of it is just a lack of understanding on the part of uh, you know, the FBI and the DOJ and attorneys general of uh, of just how prevalent the problem is and, and how to deal with it. And how prevalent do you think the problem is? Recently, when one of the uh, spyware companies, Mobispy, uh, turned out to have left its servers wide open so that you could see all of their uh, all of their users and the data that was being collected, that they had thousands and thousands of users, and that was just one service. And are these spyware programs that are uh, being used for abuse? Are those um, being marketed primarily as, you know, spouseware, et cetera, or do they have any legitimate uses? Well, for the most part, uh, there, there are two ways that these things are being marketed. One of them is catch your cheating spouse. Install this on your, you know, girlfriend or boyfriend's phone uh, if you think that they're running around on you. Uh, mind you, this is illegal. That's what I was about <laughs> to ask. Isn't, isn't this illegal? So, like, how can they be advertising that they're going to enable you to do something illegal. Oh, what they do is often they'll put some sort of disclaimer on the on the website before you download the software saying, ah. I promise not to use this for illegal reasons. But I have a great screenshot of one of the stalkerware companies having put up a website saying, catch your cheating spouse. There is a long paragraph about the perils of cheating and how frequent cheating is and the photo that goes with this screenshot is of a man grabbing an abused-looking woman with blood on her face. What? And it's very clear from this screenshot that this product is on the side of the abuser. That's remarkable. That he just caught her doing something bad and that he has clearly just beaten her and that this is justified. It's outrageous. The other way in which these things often get marketed is keep track of your children. Keep yeah. track of your children or keep track of your employees. And in some cases, that is legal, but you need consent. I have a small child. If he's my child and he's a minor, can I track him without his consent? It depends. Okay. Uh, the law varies from state to state and uh, the situation under which this sort of thing happens. So I would consult an attorney. What I can tell you is that the, the specific sort of spouseware and stalkerware that I'm concerned about, the things that I consider to be immoral, even if they are not necessarily illegal, and the kind of software that I'm trying to get AV companies to start marking as malicious is software which is designed to operate covertly. So you install it on the computer or you install it on somebody's phone and then they can't tell it's there. 
Now, if you want to see where your kid is going and you want to see their text messages and their photos because that is the price of you buying them a phone and you would like to be able to keep track of them, then there's nothing wrong with them knowing that they're being watched. It might even have some sort of deterrent effect in order to get them to behave better. Oh, yes. I, th- I think you would want to tell them. Having an icon on the, you know, on the home screen that shows you, you know, this is the, the Watcher app is not harmful. Whereas having, a, uh, having software that is specifically designed to act covertly is profoundly immoral. And I would really like to see AV companies step up and make it much more difficult to, to use. I think it's a great point that there's obviously a really big difference between tracking your children where they know that you're doing it, et cetera, even if they really don't like it, versus, yeah, covertly installing something on someone's device against their will and without their knowledge. I think that's, yeah, a pretty profound difference. So when you talk, you've mentioned antivirus companies a few times. So talk to us about what is the role of antivirus companies? Are there are there antivirus programs identifying this kind of spyware? And and if not, why not? And what should they do? So for a very long time, antivirus companies generally didn't mark this sort of software as illegal or sorry, as illicit in some way or as malicious because they felt that there were legal applications for it and therefore marking it as malicious would be inaccurate. And one of the things that I have managed to do over the last month or so is convince a couple of companies that this is simply not the case. So I've managed to get two companies to mark spouseware and stalkerware as malicious. And those are two companies that have mobile antivirus products. So that would be Kaspersky and Outlook. So right now, if you're concerned about stalkerware or spouseware, on your mobile device, you can download one of those. Uh, they will check for it and they will tell you if they find it. Are they good at that? Like how easy it is it to detect this kind of spyware? It's not particularly difficult to detect. The thing about looking for state-sponsored malware is that this is hard. Threat hunting is difficult when it comes to you know, sort of nation-state actors because they're all trying to stay quiet. Spouseware and stalkerware manufacturers are not trying to stay quiet. They're selling a product. And so if you want to find the latest spouseware or stalkerware, all you need to do is go to your search engine and search for how do I spy on my cheating girlfriend? I think one thing that would be really helpful just to understand how this really impacts people's lives. I mean, is there a story, an anonymized story you could tell us of someone who had spyware installed on their device by, let's say you know, an abusive partner. And what happened to them? Like, how does this play out in real life? I have talked to so many people that kind of start to blend together. Uh, But definitely some of the worst cases that I've seen involve uh, women who were not just being abused, but who were being gaslit and lied to. I I talked to at least one woman who was being repeatedly uh was was being stalked so repeatedly that we had difficulty maintaining safe communications and that uh her stalker kept compromising uh her lines of communication with me and then would send me messages pretending to be her uh which was pretty disturbing. I have talked to people who have been uh, physically abused, who have been repeatedly harassed, who are really scared. I talked to a man whose um, former partner outed him as gay to his extremely conservative family. 
using photos, which I thought was just particularly heart-wrenching. And I've just talked to so many very scared people. It's really, I guess, a method of controlling people and making them feel like sort of taking traditional ways of abusing partners, right, which is really about control and really being able to infiltrate all aspects of their life, even when they're not with you. Absolutely. And the the thing about having access to somebody's phone is that it's the next best thing to having access to someone's mind. And even if you don't have that access, it's possible to fake it. I encountered lots of people who did not have stalkerware on their phone, but who had account compromise. And because their accounts had been compromised, their abuser managed to convince them that they had compromised their device that they were much more powerful than they really were because they were able to use public information or information that they had gleaned from their friends and information that they had gleaned from compromised accounts. Focusing on on legislation, I mean, one thing we've talked about a little bit is that some of these uses of spyware to spy on people without their consent are illegal. So what we researched suggested that there are about 20 states in the U.S. that do have laws that target spyware practices. But other states really don't have much there. So are these laws what we need? Are they effective? And what are the major gaps? To begin with, I don't think we necessarily need you know, new laws. As, as you pointed out, there are you know, about 20 states that have applicable laws, but there are also federal laws, such as the CFAA and the, uh, and the CWA that could be used. There could also be action by the FTC. I would really like to see the FTC go after some of these companies for their trade practices. Additionally, I would like to see state attorneys general, especially in states that have two-party consent, go after the companies that are selling these products. I mean, I think those are probably the two main things. I think states attorneys general, FTC, federal action. Yeah, that doesn't sound that hard. It just sounds like maybe there's not a political will to do it. It doesn't seem like it would be very hard, but let me tell you, my track record in getting governments, you know, specifically attorneys general or, or the FBI, is zero. So it's not as easy as it sounds. I was really pleased that I managed to get some action from the AV companies, that I've managed to get action from, from private industry, that I've, you know, talked to so many individuals, but getting the will to prosecute these companies is a different matter, and it doesn't necessarily play to my strengths. Why is it so hard to get law enforcement to, to go after this? It, it, to me, it seems like a, a no-brainer. You would think that it would be easy, but often police departments and DOJ and attorneys general only have so much time. And they only have so many resources. And so when you come to them and you say, I want you to go after the companies that are selling this software, their first question will be, so what cases do you want us to drop? Mm-hmm. What do you want us to stop doing in order to pay attention to this issue that you think is important? That's a really difficult argument. And in terms of antivirus companies, I mean, couldn't this be a selling point for them? I mean, this could actually be something if they thought about how to market it. You know, the ability to actually identify whether there's spyware on your phone seems like something I'd want if I were, you know, purchasing antivirus Absolutely. capacity. And that's one of the reasons why I was able to get the antivirus companies on board. You know, I started with a company that really needed some good publicity. Right. I remember that. Yes. And now it sounds like you're managing to get a few others to come around, which is great, especially if then there's a way to educate women and other people being targeted that this, you know, it matters, which antivirus 
software they use. Absolutely, because until fairly recently, it didn't matter. Uh, None of them were really going to work. Yeah, it's amazing. Historically, I know you worked also on spyware being used against human rights activists. And obviously, it's caused really significant problems for activists in places like Mexico, where we know the government has targeted journalists and and others uh, with spyware that's, I, I'm assuming, more sophisticated. Does that kind of government use spyware need a different solution than, let's say, this commercial spyware? Are they kind of different problems? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yes, this is a, a very different matter, and it's what I spent most of my career working on, and it's still what I spent most of my career working on. I am very concerned about asymmetries of power, and when states spy on other states, when militaries spy on militaries, when you know, this sort of thing happens, I I don't you know get up and pay attention. But when states spy on individual journalists and activists, people who don't have an expectation that they will be protected by dozens and dozens of security professionals thinking about their every move, that's really where I get offended, especially when the power of the state is used to to crush dissent. Yeah, which is obviously sort of a growing problem around the world as as the capacity to surveil increases and there really aren't a lot of safeguards or norms about when that's acceptable and when that's not. One of the ways in which we we understand this sort of ecosystem is through security research. And the biggest barrier to that kind of security research for the last several years has mostly been identifying the players and who they're selling to and who they're spying on. This is extremely easy when it comes to Dockerware and spyware because all you need to do is search for it. That is not a solution that works when you're looking for for state malware. That's a great point. And and when we think about, let's go back to this the spouseware slash commercial spyware topic. Where are those companies based? Are a lot of them American? Are they where where are they from? A lot of them are based outside of the United States. I've seen a lot in India. I've seen some in Europe. But some of them are based in the U.S. And so it's possible that legal action may actually be effective. You talked a little bit about the need for law enforcement to be more active. What uh, states do you think it's most likely that we would see law enforcement step into this space here in the U.S.? I think it's most likely we will see it in California, Washington, Oregon, New York, possibly Maryland, you know, states with two-party consent and states with attorneys general that have shown a big interest in sort of fighting abuse and in supporting women's rights issues. So those those would probably be most likely candidates. And is there, it sounds like a number of these laws require that law enforcement step in, right? Is there a civil cause of action that women could bring on their own or do they have to have Um, law enforcement get involved? It varies state to state. Okay. Have we seen cases where women have brought have brought cases against their abusers for illegally installing spyware? Yes, we have, but they're very rare. One of the big problems with abuse, I mean, there are lots of problems with abuse, but one of the most heartbreaking aspects of abuse is that usually a woman in an abusive situation doesn't have the money to hire a lawyer. Right. Is that because sometimes they're not in control of their own finance? Yes. Frequently, they're not in control of of their finances. They are in a precarious enough situation with regards to their housing or possibly their children or their relationships with their families. And pursuing civil action, it just requires considerably more financial and emotional bandwidth than most women in this situation have. That's 
insightful. Yes, and that makes a lot of sense. So that makes it really important, actually, that law enforcement then step in because it's a class of victims who are not going to be very able to defend themselves. And abusers are smart. Abusers are really good at walking into situations where authorities suspect domestic abuse and throwing suspicion off of themselves. One of the very first things that I did when I started getting these messages was it became incredibly clear to me that I simply didn't know enough about domestic abuse and trauma. And so I did a lot of reading. And it's really not uncommon when the police are sent to a domestic abuse call for it to end in the victim saying, no, no, everything is okay. Or for the abuser to convince law enforcement that the victim is actually at fault. Yes. I mean, I've seen this. I've known people who were in abusive relationships, and it's amazing how the tables can get turned. One of the, again, so, so much of this work is just frustrating and heartbreaking, but one of the books that I read, Helping Her Break Free, the gist of it was essentially do not get involved in trying to help people to escape abusive relationships unless you are ready to watch the victim go back to their abuser, possibly repeatedly. If you are not prepared for this, then this is not the job for you. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And and do you feel like with the spyware, the spouseware, I mean, it must be getting used in a range of situations, both women who are sort of embedded in very abusive relationships, and I would imagine women who have tried to escape them, but then are followed this way. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the work that you're doing. I mean, I think this is such a, the fact this is such a widespread problem that it really hasn't been recognized, dealt with by antivirus companies, dealt with by law enforcement. I mean, to me, I guess as a woman makes me quite upset. So thank you for your work. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks so much for listening. To learn more about the intersection of technology and human rights, visit the Human Rights Initiative webpage at CSIS.org. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to help other people find us too.